and I'm curious what your thought is on this, but some of the best advice I ever got is like the sooner you figure out that no one knows what they're doing, the better off you are. And I think I've kind of taken that to heart. I mean, like it's easy to get wrapped up and this is true with kids. It's true with entrepreneurship and it's, you know, true with anything, but it's like, you always assume everyone knows everything except you. Like you're the out, you're the guy that doesn't know what he's doing. Hi, I'm Tim. This is We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit. I think one of the best ways for each of us to grow as people is by learning from each other. If you enjoy today's episode, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever app you're listening from. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I'm joined by Cody Rich. He's a husband, father, brother, host of the popular The Rich Outdoors podcast, which inspires and helps hunters become better at hunting. Also founder of Backcountry Fuelbox, a company that provides food for backpacking trips. And one of the main reasons I, I reached out to you, Cody, was I had heard this story of in, in 2009, you breaking your neck, uh, becoming completely paralyzed, and then being told you'll never walk again. Uh, you know, hearing that is like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of, kind of stopped me in my tracks. So I, I definitely want to talk about that. Um, what I also heard though, in kind of learning more about yourself, uh, and this kind of fascinates me because I'm from the Chicago area. So I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I live in the city of Chicago. Um, so, you know, quite an, an urban area, um, even, you know, the suburbs are semi-urban, uh, but you grew up on a large property, it sounds like, with just rivers and ponds and, and, and endless land of trees. And um, in my mind, I'm, it's like a movie. So I would love to hear about like, what was it like growing up in that kind of environment? Uh, well, thanks for having me on, Tim. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I can I'm much to this, much similar to the way that you kind of have it hard to imagine, or uh, this this fairy tale land that I grew up in. I could never imagine like growing up in Chicago, and even to this day, like just thinking about having to, if I had to move to Chicago, like I'm such an outdoors person, and I don't know if that stems from a childhood of just kind of growing up outdoors, and that was kind of my coping mechanism or what. But like, still to this day, you know, being outside being in the woods that's what re-energizes me to do all the things i do and i mean if you ask my wife just like being around people or cities you know i live in bozeman which i still consider a big city but uh to most like yourself probably do not you know and anytime <laughs> i'm in this in, in the city air quotes here uh like i just I feel so overwhelmed and it's interesting because like there's not many things in my world that overwhelm me but if you ask my wife being around people, the city, the concrete jungle, if you will, like that is one thing that like, man, it just sucks it out of me. So uh, yeah, we live very different worlds uh, for sure. Um, you know, I, growing up, I didn't know any different. So it's it's interesting to go back and, and look at it. Like I had a really awesome childhood and, and I think I struggle with that to this day because, you know, you, you look at, I just uh, had my first child in July. And as I look to like how to raise that kid, I was so blessed to just have like the run of the mill. Like we had a Creek, uh, Creek river, what do you want to call it? It's a Creek, uh, that runs through our property. We had five or six ponds to go fishing and like, you know, like just like the dream scenario of a kid just wandering around and exploring. And I always think about that because I'm like, man, how am I going to give that to my kid? And it's so hard in today's day and age to like match that. So, uh, yeah, I guess there's, there's, uh, there's pros and cons to it. Right. Yeah, I, like you said, I think it is. Maybe it is harder nowadays um, to to do that. But it, you mentioned um, that you you get re-energized by kind of being in the woods and being with nature, and then it's also maybe a coping mechanism. What what kind of coping? Like, is it the sort of thing where like if you're having a bad day or as a kid you got in a disagreement with mom or dad that like you could go kind of to your sanctuary and then kind of feel re-energized and rejuvenated for sure i mean i mean there was a lot of that as a kid like um whether it was like avoiding things or uh you know getting in trouble or whatever it was like that was always kind of my escapism you know like where like my family has um a little under a thousand acres of farm ground uh most of it's you know agricultural farm ground but where we lived 
um, a couple miles from the actual farm, we had about 40 acres uh, that was kind of just, I could go play. Right. And so anytime I felt, you know, whatever stressed or just tired of people or my brother or sister or whatever it may be, like I would definitely just go kind of explore and be on my own. And like, that's why it's interesting. Like, I don't know if that stems to like today as a coping mechanism. I think a lot of people have that, you know, like they go do the thing that they're familiar with. Um, to me, you know, these days it's, it's going out in the mountains and things, but at those times, I mean, when I was a kid, 40 acres was plenty to go explore and mess around and, and build forts and do those things. And, you know, I'm sure like a lot of it is, uh, that's just your escapism. That's your, your way to kind of get away from it all. Um, and I, th- I think that's kind of just stuck with me throughout my life. One of the best things I love about doing this podcast is like connecting with folks like yourself who, you know, I get to see a different perspective on things from, you growing up on 40 acres, I'm thinking my parents have what I and my siblings have always and our friends considered a big backyard in suburban Chicago. Uh, They live on a cul-de-sac. There's all these houses that surround it. They live on a half acre lot. (laughs) And so in my mind here, I'm like, wow, you know, such a different perspective. Like I think, you know, their house isn't a mansion or anything. It's it's a suburban house. But the backyard. I mean, as a kid, I remember cutting the grass took me an hour and a half, you know, at a slight incline and emptying the bag and, and you were running around on 40 acres of just, you know, like you probably couldn't see the end of it. So like, you know, it's like in Lion King, like, you know, everything you see in this kingdom is yours. Um, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty special. I, and it's funny, like I do have um, a different perspective and I'm, you know, a lot of people, I look at like 40 acres as like, okay, it's a pretty small chunk. I mean, just in compared to like, what the farm was, we're talking like miles and, you know, going different places. And it was, I mean, it was interesting. Like, I, I, and I'd be curious, like, you know, when you were growing up, like how far did your parents let you roam? Like, was it like, I would be so deathly afraid to let my kids roam in Chicago, not knowing a thing about it. Right. Um, but then I look back and like what my parents let me get away with. And I mean, I was just at home for Christmas and I was telling my mom about, we were reminiscing about stories of, you know, ending up, you know, two or three miles away on set so-and-so's house and then have to use the (laughs) phone to call mom. And we were joking about how that can never happen today. But again, it's like, I don't know if that's the same within, you know, the city. Like I'm sure it's, there's versions of that, right? Yeah. It's interesting. Cause when you kind of said like, you know, I wonder how far you wandered away. I started to think to myself like, okay, I know I always went to, you know, we got on the bikes and we went down the street, you know, around the block on the other side and, but then I thought, oh, well, there's streets like so there's cars and, you know, it's like it's all more broken up, whereas you probably had like expansive just land to wander around on with with few yeah. roads. So, yeah, now I'm wondering, like, my gosh, I mean, we probably went a couple blocks away on bikes and stuff, maybe the other kids in the neighborhood. But I mean, we weren't going more than a mile away, if that from yeah. from the house. That's wow. That's amazing. When I, I'm just smiling, thinking now, like. <laughs> Again, like you never think about that perspective until you hear another one. Um, and it's interesting. You're were, you were kind of like talking and we flashed forward a little bit in my life to talking about the time I broke my neck. And I think a lot of that, I mean, we could dive into that and talking to, in mindset and perspective, but I think it all starts when you're young. One of my good friends um, here in Bozeman, they were out ice fishing last weekend and, you know, driving their uh, razor around on some hard ice on a, on, on a place that gets ice fished a lot. He's ice fished a lot. And for whatever reason, like there's a lot of things went the wrong way and they were out at night and went into the ice. And it's, it's a really scary situation. And, and basically the, the razor, the side-by-side was like sinking. He was trying to get his kid out of the seatbelt. Oh and, boy. Yeah. And like, he was like, when he told the story, he was like, you know, just the sheer panic and his kids freaking out. Anyway, it, it worked out. They get out of the razor, you know, and they have to walk like a mile back in the ice cold. And rightfully so my friend uh, was very shaken up about this. And I, and I, we were, talking about it a few days later. And I was like, you know what? It's really sad to say this, but that's probably a good thing. I mean, like, I'm really thankful that your kid survived and everything went well. Um, and you got really lucky. You probably shouldn't do it intentionally, but there's probably some good that's going to come from that because that kid has been through a little bit, you know, it's going to like 
it's going to harden him a little bit. And I think the same thing could be said for like a lot of my experiences, you know, look going up into becoming paralyzed and working through that. And we could talk about like my mindset and, and the things I went about when I was told I was going to be paralyzed, but I think it all stems you backwards. Um, and it's like little steps, right? It's getting progressively introduced to a little bit harder things and harder things. And if you go back, I think, we were talking about the creeks and the rivers and things and, and being allowed to just explore and roam. And one time when I was a little kid, we had this, this Creek and in the, in the winter it would get pretty flooded. It would be Brown and it's probably, I don't know, 50 feet across, 60 feet across. And I used to run these crawdad traps. So crawfish trap is like in the Creek. It's uh, how you catch crawdads. Right. And I used to have a couple of those down the Creek and, and it was winter and I hadn't picked this trap up and it was attached to the other side of the creek. And of course, you know, I don't know how old I was, nine or 10 maybe. And I had crossed the river uh, in chest waders and it was just too deep to get across and ended up kind of getting washed on the creek and put onto the other side. And I'm soaking wet and freezing. And like, I remember being scared for my life and like screaming, but I mean, no one can hear me. I'm so far from anything. And I remember being deathly afraid at that point. I think it was the first time in my life where I was like, oh no, I'm in a bad situation. And there was nothing anyone could do about it. And I ended up having to swim back back across this creek, you know, brown flooded and going back to the house. I don't even think I told my mom or anyone um, what had happened, you know, like tried to hide it so I wouldn't get in trouble. Um, sure, sure. But and like in, in retrospect, it was fairly dangerous, but at the same time, like probably not life-threatening. Um, but it was like one of those things, like th that's just like the first step. And like, I think my life has been just <laughs> steps of things getting worse and worse, which kind of like sets you up for success. You know, like it's the hardships that make you who you are. Absolutely. And I mean, that's really where the resiliency comes from. Like I think about that example you gave of, you know, where you got washed away there and then, you know, felt like you were in a bad situation. Like that was probably a great it's like data for you as a kid to to bring into your mind and think, okay, so yeah. this is what a bad situation looks like. <laughs> I I know how to handle it better next time. And like you said, you kind of you know you're you're that much more resilient step by step. For sure, and I'll never forget like going from hopeless to having to figure it out. I remember sitting on that bank, and I was probably on the other bank for I don't know. It had to have been at least an hour, maybe more. Um, trying to you know like just waiting for help, right? And I went from. I specifically remember at the time in my head, it was like, no one's coming for me. I'm going to have to do this on my own. And like having to swim back across this flooded river. And like, it would, I, I hands down think that that was a mindset shift in my head that was like from, you know, the age of eight, nine, 10, whatever it was to going, okay, how do I solve these problems or how do I get out of these predicaments? And I, I'm fortunate in that way, but I don't know that everyone is, you know, some people are, like, okay, how is this problem going to get solved for me? Or who, who can help me with this problem? But like, and to a fault, I will say that, like, that's not always the greatest thing. Like there's times where my wife would argue that like, sometimes I need to not lean on myself entirely. So, I mean, there's pros and cons to it, but I do think that was a mindset shift as a, as a child for me to be like, okay, how am I going to get myself out of this situation? You mentioned your wife's sake, maybe don't lean on yourself entirely. Are you, uh, I am such a type of person that likes to lean on myself and traditionally has like I view myself as independent and I kind of view us all as like we're these independent people who we can make our life happen and and we can like you said get yourself out of bad situations by ourselves um and traditionally not the best at asking for help um I love how you said lean on you know lean in yourself because that's really what it is are you someone that like traditionally operates that way too and like you wouldn't necessarily naturally go ask for help and not literally necessarily like, you know, save me from the water. But if you were in a situation where, you know, like, Oh, I wonder if this person can help me out. You wouldn't maybe naturally think to do that. Oh, for sure. And I think that's like, I can, I can openly say that's like one of my faults is that when I'm pressured, I tend to lean on myself and not ask for help. Um, I'm trying to think of a good scenario, um, but can't come to me in the top of my, or can't come to me right now, but like anything really is like, anytime I get pressure squeezed or like there's, everything's going wrong. I tend to like shut everything out to a fault and like that kind of just rely on myself, uh, which is not always a good thing. I think 
there's a balance, right? And and there's the ebb and flow. And I think it's important for for people to be able to overcome circumstances on their own, be able to like be independent and be like, okay, I need to solve this problem. But at the same time, you can't take that too far. I mean, you have to be like the type of person that says, okay, when is it time for me to like, hey, I need help. And that's as important. Yeah. And I imagine after your accident that that really came to light. I mean, needing. So, so let's talk about that. And, and this is like, it was one of those things when I heard the story, I thought, I mean, honestly, the first thing I thought was like, how are you still here? And I don't mean that in a bad way, but like, talk about getting knocked down. So from what I, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, you were with some friends and um, at a pond and you dove into the pond. Um, I don't know, like, you know, there was a dock or a concrete um, Mm -hmm. block and you kind of hit it. And then that's when you broke your neck, which to me is like breaking your neck. I thought is like, you don't usually come back from that. So (laughs) yeah. And it can go a lot of different ways. This this, I'm going to tell this story, but I'm going to put the caveat. This is not my smartest moment. Um, it's probably not my dumbest moment for the record, but not judging here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, when it comes up that I broke my neck and it's always like, Oh, how did you do that? It was a car accident. Was it, you know, whatever. And I'm like, no, I'm just really good at diving. Um, so (laughs) (laughs) what had happened is, um, how old was I? 22 probably. Um, at the time it's just 2009. So man, it was almost, uh, 11 years ago. That's crazy. Um, we had, met up with some friends. I had just got back from a work trip, literally just walked up to the pond and a bunch of people were out on a floating dock. And there's a dock that kind of ran into this pond. Um, and there's a bunch of people out on a floating piece of it. So like, we're going to f- swim out to that. And I kind of just ran and jumped off the dock. Well, the floating dock that was in the middle of the pond was basically I guess strapped to the ground or, or tied down via buckets full of concrete. And one of these buckets had come off um, and concrete's actually fairly buoyant. So it turns out, I don't know if there's an air pocket in it or what, but basically there was a five gallon bucket of concrete that was kind of bouncing around the bottom of the pond aimlessly. Uh, and I found it. So I run and dive off this dock at fairly high speed and kind of shallow dove, but I hit this bucket full of concrete well, and, and to, to be fair, there's no way you would have known that that was there, right? I mean, this no. is like a muddy, you know, I'm imagining yeah. like a pond where you cannot see the bottom. Yeah, you can't see the bottom. It's it's very muddy. Like it's six, eight inches of very silty kind of soft bottom. So, it, you know, hitting the bottom or hitting rocks wasn't really in the back of my mind. It was kind of like, oh, just swim out there. Yeah. Um, and I dove off and I'll never forget hitting something it just was almost lights out i I very distinctly remember thinking don't black out don't black out it was just kind of on the verge of blacking out and i remember hearing the pop maybe in hindsight but it it popped and i remember thinking don't black out don't black out and then the next thought i had was like okay i can't move but i have to get my head above water and it was like, it seemed to go in very slow motion for me. And I remember like, okay, I can't move, have to get my head above water, have to get my head above water. And I, I remember thinking that for a very long time. And I remember thinking I have to breathe. But in the back of my head, I was like, okay, you can hold your breath longer than you think. It's fine. Just don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. And about that time, I remember bobbing up, taking a big grasp of air and one of my really close friends, Sam, was there, like he was coming. And I went back under, and it was the same thing. I was like, okay, I have to breathe. I have to breathe. I have to breathe. I just get your head above water, get your head above water. And I was like right on the verge of blacking out again. I was like, okay, just don't think about it. Like trying to mentally block this like thought that I had to breathe, but I was stuck underwater. And that's when Sam kind of pulled me up. And I'll never forget, I knew it was bad because when Sam pulled me up, I was looking at the bottom of my foot. And I had never really seen the bottom of my foot before. And I just said to him, I was like, it's bad, isn't it? And he said, yeah. And it was like, okay. That's the moment I was like, okay, my neck's broken. 
And Sam, bless, bless his heart, one of my best friends, he had just gotten back from Iraq. And I think he kind of went a little post-traumatic on me because I'm telling him, like, you have to float me in the water. You have to float me. And, like, we're, I'm yelling at this point. And he's, like, not – he's not hearing me. And he had just kind of blacked out. Um, and so, luckily, we, you know, whatever had happened, we floated me in the water. And – so we're, they're floating me. They're trying to hold my head. And, um, there was actually another nurse there. And so we're trying to just keep me basically as still as possible. They called 911. And I'll never forget. Like I kept asking if my arms were bleeding. I was like, my arm, my arms bleeding. They hurt so bad. And because of the nerve damage, it was basically, it felt like my elbows were just raw meat. And then I was trying to keep them out of the water. Cause it did feel like a sting. Especially if you had a, like a, a cut, imagine that being your whole arm, like a cut that was underwater and was stinging. Um, yeah, that was the most pain. That was the only pain really that happened was the nerve damage. Um, but I remember in that moment, like just, okay, this is like, I just have to get better. Um, and I, there's a moment where they put me in the helicopter and my arms came back cause I was completely gone, but basically it was this, the when it went my basically I broke my uh, C six and or C seven C six into six different pieces and just shattered it. Um, C C seven C six those are vertebrae. Yes, so my C I think it was my C ten years ago. I believe it was my C seven that shattered. Might have been C six. Uh, anyway, the shattered one of the bones went through my spinal cord, so there's a lot of damage. There's a lot of shock in there, but my Ooh. hands my hands came back just a little bit. Like I could like move my hands very ever so slightly, uh, in the helicopter. And I was like, okay, everything's going to be fine. Like I, I'm going to get better. And I, uh, switching my head went off and I was like, okay, I'm going to get better. Um, fast forward, you know, there's a lot of things that go on and you get to the hospital, you get to the ER, you moved around, you're so high on drugs and everything's going, you know, a hundred directions. There's a million people. Um, and I don't, I had kind of built rapport with a nurse that was hanging out with me. And, and, um, I had asked her a few times, you know, like, Hey, what are my odds? What are my odds? And one of the docs came in and in retrospect, I'm not hard on this doctor because it's his job. Um, and he probably has to tell everyone this and I'm not saying it was or wasn't correct, but you know, I asked him what my odds were and he's like, well, you're never going to walk again, but hopefully we can get some feeling back or something along those lines. And I, I'll never forget the nurse just starts bawling. And in my head, I remember like looking over her and I was like, he's dead wrong. Like he's just not right. And I don't know, like looking back on it scares the hell out of me. Um, I think if, if I had to go through that again, I'd probably start bawling too. But for whatever reason in my head was like, no, you're wrong. And I was bound and determined to prove him wrong. Um, did that feeling continue like after throughout recovery? Did you, did that kind of wane off and you started to think, oh, maybe he's right? Or did you just continue to get like more invested in, oh, I will walk again? It was a little bit of both. I mean, I'm not going to sit there and say that like every day was rosy and you're like, oh, I'm going to get better. Um, I remember getting transferred to rehab and went to Rehabilitation Institute in Oregon. And um, I remember getting transferred there. And I was pretty high spirited, but you go there and bless their heart. Everyone there has gone through something similar or a stroke or whatever. And everyone there just believes they're not going to walk again. And everybody in the staff, and I hate to push blame in retrospect, but the, you know, the staff works with people who probably won't get better and have no willpower to get better. And so you're surrounded by people who don't, uh, they're just at their low point in their life. And that was, that was hard. It was like, okay, man, I'm, I'm in this room with a bunch of people who are at their lowest. And I, to me went into it like, okay, let's train. I have nothing to do in my life now. Like everything is on hold. We just train. That's what we do. And there was times where I was like, man, am I going to ever walk again? Am I not like, so like you go back and forth, but I think it, for the most part, like I, I really did believe that. And I'll never forget one of them, one of my head nurses there. She kind of had this, she had basically told my family like, Hey, don't, don't let him do this or don't let him do that. Like not to let me have shortcuts. And I remember thinking like, 
you don't know me at all. Like I'm not taking a single shortcut and I'm going to prove you wrong. Like I am going to walk. And so in retrospect, it's like, you know, the, the old adage that, you know, people telling you that you can't do something is probably the best motivation there ever was. Um, to some degree, like I'm sure that had a piece of it and maybe most of it was luck. I don't know. Um, I, I know there's some very strong willed people that have been paralyzed and, and didn't walk, uh, afterwards. And so I don't think it's completely willpower. I think there's a lot of luck involved. Um, so I can't sit there and say like, Oh, I willed myself to walk again, but you know, slowly and slowly, like that's, it, it came back and I was really fortunate. What were the, what was kind of that journey there? Like what were the next steps after your, I imagine you're in the hospital and then you're out of the hospital, but like, cause I'm just thinking like the longer you are like, I would imagine each day after this happens, it becomes more and more real and the longer you are now in this state and realizing the road ahead, like that's where I feel like it could just take a toll on like, you know, you might wake up one day and be like, I got this. But to, the next day you're like, I don't, I, I want to give up. Like, yeah. so I'm wondering like, what was that journey like? Were you, again, were you kind of starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel or was it just kind of back and forth of like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. It's a lot of back and forth. I remember being in Rio and I mean, basically it felt like everyone there was teaching me how to live in a wheelchair. Like that was their job and maybe it is their job and that's fine. Um, but it was just like, I was like, I thought I was the crazy one. You know, everyone is teaching me how to live in a wheelchair. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. Like I'm going to walk again. Like this is like that. We don't, this is an option. Um, and so it it was a lot of that. It was like, you're, it's your own battle. Like you said, it's back and forth. Yeah. I remember, um, the time I spent in Rio, there was a lot of progress. And by the time I left, um, I had one leg that was working. Okay. I still couldn't hold a pop can up even with my hands, my hands were working fine, but I had so little strength. That I couldn't hold a drink to drink it by myself. Like it's the weirdest feeling to, to be able to like, I'm looking at a coffee cup right now and be able to look at that coffee cup and be like, okay, I'm going to grab that coffee cup and I'm going to pick it up. But you grab it and you can squeeze as hard as you can. And, you know, two months ago, you probably could have crushed the coffee cup. But now I, I physically can't apply enough pressure to keep it in my hand, even though it feels in my brain like I am doing that thing. Um, and the same was with my leg. Um, I remember, like, it was the weirdest thing to think I, I could mentally walk through the process of how to move my leg. But it would not move. And it was like, I'm telling my foot to do that. And it just, it's not doing it. And so like, you're like, you're, you're just going through a lot of mental battles. And as I left there, I think one of the hardest moments that I had in all of my rehab was going home because it transitioned from being in this environment where this is all I did was train. Um, and I was surrounded by that. Like I was like, my the real world so to speak was blocked out but when you go home you see all the things you used to do you see all your old hobbies you see all your old you know the the, the simplest thing like the yard needing mode like that would crush you because you're like i can never do that again and you're going to go through these battles of like i can't do the thing i used to do which is an identity problem at its core is like i am not who i used to be yeah. um and i think that's the hardest struggle for people um, whether it's learning how to accept a new identity and live in a wheelchair, or it's like ex or trying to find your new identity of like, am I, am I going to be paralyzed? Am I not going to be paralyzed? Who am I? Who is this new person? Like, do I have to find all new hobbies? Do I have to like become a writer? Like these are all like struggles that you go through. Um, but I think the number one thing is like, you can't ever give up and you can't ever like dwell on what you used to do or what you used to be. That must be so hard, though. I mean, especially coming home. I never thought about that. Coming home from rehabilitation and seeing everything so viscerally and feeling and smelling and thinking, is this still part of who I am or do I have to start to redefine? And if so, how do I even begin to redefine who I am? Yeah. You know, thinking, I love the mowing the lawn as an example. And especially someone like yourself who is such a person that thrives and, you know, finds energy and identity in the outdoors. Um, that must've just been a really frightening feeling when you first walked in, you know, to your house that day. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, there's, 
there's definitely two approaches. Like you can sit there and sulk and be like, okay, well, you know, poor me. Or it'd be like, okay, I'm just going to do like this. And I hate to say like, I'm just going to do everything I used to do because that's not always the case. And for the record, I think there's, I, I've talked to a lot of people who've been in this similar circumstance or who are, and I'm sure there's people going to be listening to this podcast. that are going to go through these struggles or have gone through these struggles. And it's interesting because we dwell on the identity we used to be. But the truth is like our identity is ever changing. Like who I am, whether I was paralyzed or not, like is going to change and evolve. Like we, you know, we grow into different hobbies. We have kids and we don't have time for hobbies or like whatever it may be. Like we change as humans. And it's unfortunate that accidents like mine or like car accidents can instantly change that without your approval. But at the same time, like you just have to accept that. And go into this new identity is like, okay, who am I or what am I going to be? And that's not to say you should give up and just accept your fate. Like you can still move in a direction that you want to, but it's a, it's a balance of like a, a piece of you has to accept the new identity in order to create whatever identity you can or cannot create. You mentioned becoming a parent and I know you, your son is under a year old, right? This is mm-hmm. relatively new piece of your identity. How is <laughs> yeah. How has that kind of affected, you know, you, I love how you point out that our identity is always evolving because I so agree with that. Um, how has, you know, your son now kind of helped evolve your identity? Uh, a lot. I mean, it's, I'm just like, okay, so we're at six months. I'm pretty much still at shell shock stage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really feel like I have... Um, the ability to talk on the matter. Cause like, I'm sure there's parents that are like, ah, just wait, son. Uh, and that's fine. Like, you know, like it is, you know, I am, uh, I'm kind of a workaholic. I'm kind of always doing a lot, uh, whether it's hobbies or work, you know, you know, my company requires quite a bit of time. And so like that has been a huge identity struggle for me is like, I don't, I want to be a great parent. You know, I want to be there all the time. I want to do bad time every night, but also, like I have an incessant need to be a workaholic. And I, I say that in an endearing way. And I try not to like, you know, there are people who are workaholics in a very bad way. Um, I I'm right on the line. Depends on who you ask, but you know, it's like, it's, it's a change in identity because like at the end of the day, we're, I'm pretty maxed out on time. And then you throw a baby in there and you're like, and you want to be that good person. You want to be a good dad. You want to be a good human. And you want to teach them all these things. And like, you're torn. You're like, I want to hang out with my kid. But I also have a lot of obligations. And so like, you know, it's definitely, it's a moving target. I I don't know that I I can say like how it's changed, but it's, I can definitely see it like, okay, like this is, uh, this is this new challenge. Yeah, I I can relate. I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. So I, I well, I don't necessarily remember six months, but I remember (laughs) that first year, especially with my, my oldest is just uh, shell shock is a great way to put it. I don't know if I was out of shell shock until much later than six months. But <laughs> Well, I guess as a parent that like has um, kids that have had kids for, or you have had kids for a while, like you probably look at the first six months as like, yeah, I, I don't know. Like it's kind of blur, right? It's, it's interesting because, you know, what I've, I've learned. So, I mean, we've all learned so much and I'm sure you'll learn so much over, you know, your son's life and, but like one of the things I, I realized and the, the only way I was able to learn this was just time of them getting older was that as they get older and they evolve as humans, they obviously they depend on you in different ways and need you in different ways. And obviously, I mean, you know, a nine year old needs you much less than a six month old in terms of like just to stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it also then, you know, affects your your time and your capacity in your life, you know, a six months old requires so much of your capacity, both mental and physical in a given day. But, you know, obviously once they're four five, six, seven, eight, nine, like they're going to require less of your capacity. So it's, it's one of those things that I kind of wish I had known because I would have probably shifted around kind of what I was feeling that capacity with had I known that, you know, Cause you know, it's like a, I'm sure, I don't know if you're experiencing this, but it's like freaking out, right? Like I totally relate. Like you have all these things you enjoy about your life and you know, I'm sure you and your wife have hobbies and date nights and things. And obviously it's all evolving, but you kind of freak out cause you're like, okay, this is my life now. I need to still have everything be the same. 
And had someone told me like, well, yeah, it is your life now, but like in a year, he's going to need you differently. Two years, he's going to need you differently. Three years. And all of a sudden, like, you know, it, it just, it changes so quickly. Um, the other thing I've learned too, and this is something that I think I'm sure you'll relate to is that, and I never realized this, but I think it's, it's so important actually for our children to understand who we are as people and that we are people like with hobbies and things we like outside of obviously like being their parent as weird as that sounds. Um, so, you know, it's, I'm sure it's a good thing that, you know, your, your, your kid will be a part of, you know, watching whatever it is you're building, obviously with your podcast and, you know, your, your hobbies and such and, and being a part of that, like, you know, that'll be part of his identity of you. And that's probably a good thing. No, for sure. And like, you know, I've, I've read a lot of books in my life and a lot of, you know, biographies and you look at some people who are very successful and then they ended up not having very successful kids because they like neglected it. But a certain part of me be- truly believes like you have to lead from the front. If you want to like tell your kid like, to have work ethic, you know, it's, it's interesting if you sit there and say, you know, tell your kid he can be anything when he grows up, but you didn't, um, you know, how, how is that advice applicable? And so exactly. from the, from the same principle, it's like, you know, I can't, you, you got to balance. It's like living life to what you want it to be. And also to show your kids and be like, Hey, you know, you can be anything you want to be like, here's how I did it, you know, go for it. Um, and that's not to, to crush anyone that doesn't, but you know, I, there's a very PC world right now, um, to be, you know, you got to be at everything. You got to be every event. You got to, you know, every time your kid takes a crap, you got to be there, um, and support them and whatnot. And like, I, I didn't have that at all. Like I was, I was fairly free range kid and I grew up, you know, fine, nice, great relationship with my mom. And, you know, and like, like I, I, I truly believe like a lot of it is leading from the front. Now, granted, you have to be there to like help the kid along. Like my, you know, my job is, I see my job as a parent and I, saying this is I, I used to say I'm an armchair quarterback. I can't say that anymore because I technically have a kid, even though at six months, I don't know that I really have any to wait to stand or a box to stand <laughs> or to preach this from. But like, you know, your job as a parent is to kind of c- help coach your kids to help them work through their own problems and help get them through life. Um, and, you know, that's the same as employees and things. I look at, you know, all the mentorships that I've had, but also now the mentorships that I give out. And it's like, okay, my job isn't to save you from your faux pas or your your screw ups it's to help you work through them and figure out why you know and i i think i i look at my job as a parent similar but it's who knows that could all change i could (laughs) oh and i'm sure it all will the other thing too is and i remember this now that i'm kind of recollecting when my son my oldest was uh was that age is like and i don't know if you relate to this but when they're especially that first year I was the type of person, I am the type of person, like my dad would always like rough house with us on the floor, like let us climb on his back and, you know, like ride him like a horse and like just play with us. And I'm so like that with my kids. But you can't do that when they're less than a year old. Like they, <laughs> A, they're not physically capable. B, they have no concept of it. C, they yeah. probably don't even know who you are yet. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> for sure. And so I remember that first year, like where you're at now in six months, it was like, this is fun, but yeah. like, secretly i kind of wish he was a little older like so i could like play with him yeah (laughs) and like that sounds bad but i remember thinking that like i love him to death and he's amazing but like i can't wait till next year when we can like play on the floor and like you know you could kick me and i can kick you and we can kind of have you know what i mean like i know that sounds bad but so so there's part of that too where like and i firmly believe like if you do feel that way i hope i don't feel bad about it i hope no one does but like we I, we all have different ways of like connecting with others. And I feel like, you know, I was, you know, like my daughter is five and like, she's at that perfect age where, I mean, we, you know, we screw around all the time and have a blast and like, we're, you know, very physical together in, in a playful way. And like, you know, you couldn't do that when she was six months old. And it, I, yeah. I think it's just like, I definitely connected in, in a certain way. And I think, you know, for me to have that, real full connection I, I had to wait a little longer like i wasn't you know other people i think connect really well with like the baby phase so 
I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I must be in trouble because my kid at six months, like him and I just growl back and forth and he'll growl at me and I'll growl back and he'll growl. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and like, I can just tell he's going to be a rough house there. Cause like you try to hold him and he's like trying to eat your face and like, <laughs> just growling at you. He growled at uh, the daycare lady the other day. And I was like, that's normal. He's it's affection. <laughs> it's affection. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's such a blast. I mean, I, the the number one thing I always think about that I've experienced is just like as soon. I mean, and this will I'm sure be true the entire my entire life and my kids' entire lives. It's just as soon as I feel like I've figured out their current age and like I understand how to parent this age and I understand we're connecting well and I understand you know we've got this figured out is when they change and like they level up. It's like you're in a video yeah. game. And once you've <laughs> figured out how to beat the level, you're in the next level and now you have no idea how to beat it. For sure. You know, and I'm curious what your thought is on this, but some of the best advice I ever got is like the sooner you figure out that no one knows what they're doing, the better off you are. And I think I've kind of taken that to heart. I mean, like it's easy to get wrapped up. And this is true with kids. It's true with entrepreneurship and it's, you know, true with anything, but it's like, you always assume everyone knows everything except you. Like you're the out, you're the guy that doesn't know what he's doing. And I've really just kind of taken that to like, okay, we're going to figure it out. Like I'll work through it. It's kind of a, it's a build your own adventure type experience. And that's, you know, like that's very much with kids. You know, I, I really try not to dwell on it. Like, well, I don't know, but no one else does either. So let's just make it up as we go. I am so glad you brought this up because I, absolutely relate to that like I was the same way I always feel like this I feel like everyone knows what they're doing and I'm the only one in the room that doesn't and honestly like when I became a parent is when I realized and I kind of felt more than ever that my parents were just people like as a kid like you said you think like of course they know everything they're your parent like they know what they're doing they've been trained in this like they went to some (laughs) you know what I mean like they're experts And then you become a parent and you're like, wait a second, I'm just making this up. They were making uh, it up too. <laughs> and like, I've gotten to the point now where I literally told my oldest, I'm like, you know, we're just making this up as we go along, right? Like, I want to be perfectly honest with you, both of us. Like, you are making this up as my son and I'm making this up as your father. So just so we're on the same page. Uh, but the, you know, what's funny is like, that's completely applicable for business too. I watch so many entrepreneurs and I was this way. Like when I was like, I'm going to do my own thing someday or whatever. And you just assumed that everyone was doing it knew exactly what they were doing. You're like, I just have yeah. to figure this out. But then you get into the entrepreneur world and you're like, oh, oh, I get it. <laughs> no one has a clue. And the rules change every 12 minutes anyway. So just don't worry. <laughs> about it. It's so true. And I think the the more we shine a light on that and like bring that to the front of like, it's okay if you feel like you don't know what you're doing or you feel like you're not doing it as well as the person next to you because A, they also don't know what they're doing and B, they probably feel like they're not doing it as well as you. So the sooner we can both like talk about Mm -hmm. that, the sooner we can both, you know, feel better about it and help each other move forward. Well, and another thing on that is like, and I think this stems, they, they talk about two different mindsets, the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And I think like the sooner you can acknowledge or accept the fact that no one knows what they're doing, we're all just making this up, the sooner you can kind of move into that growth mindset. And it circles back to like, we can talk about traumatic incidents or, you know, when I broke my neck, right? Like there's, there's the, oh, what was me? This is what happened. Poor me. And this is my, the card I was dealt or it's like, okay, how do we learn or what can we get out of this experience? Uh, and that can be anything, you know, and I, whether it's kids or whether it's an, uh, a traumatic event, like you could probably argue that those are the same thing. Uh, you know, it's anything. It's like once you accept it's like, oh, we're all just making this up. It really helps you move into this growth mindset, which I think is really important uh, for anything, for life, man, it just across the board. I couldn't agree more. And I love that idea of the growth mindset because – I mean, like you said, the sooner we can get to that mindset, I mean, the better for all of us, then we can continue growing and, you know, learning, which I think is the most important part of it all. Yeah, for sure. One thing I, I read about, um, or I think I heard in another podcast interview of yours, um, but it, it, I want to ask about it because you seem like the type of person who really likes to 
go for a thrill. Um, but you used to have a passion for racing ATVs. Mm-hmm. Is it, do you call them ATVs or that's what I always call uh, them, the four wheelers. Yeah. Four wheeler ATV, it's a scooter, like all of the above. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, like I said, in pretty rural America, and uh, that was kind of like what you did for fun, um, you know, riding four wheelers and stuff. And did you have some on the forty acres, like, and you would ride uh, around, or was this elsewhere? No, yeah, we. I, I mean, later, later in life, we had. You know, I. It's interesting because you kind of the average of the seven people that hang around, and and for whatever reason, like I got into four wheelers probably because my cousins or someone, and and then just there was a lot around in like the community area that we were, and so, and then naturally there's a lot like motocross tracks around, so you get into motocross and. Um, that, I mean, when I was a kid, I thought that's, that was the end all be all. I was going to be a professional motocross, ATV motocross or ATV guy. And, uh, you know, it's good. And like, I think that probably stems a lot from my, my, uh, risk taking <laughs> throughout life and everything else. Uh, but I think it was good. Like it, it taught me a lot, um, growing up for sure. Uh, it's not an inexpensive hobby. There's, there's definitely uh, cheaper hobbies you can grow up doing. <laughs> <laughs> And this is like, I mean, it's kind of like the dirt biking almost, right? Like you're going over jumps and like on yeah. all-terrain courses. Like this isn't just like riding down the sidewalk. Uh, no, no. Like I eventually ended up racing. So I ended up racing what they call the work series, which is like an off-road. So it's kind of a mix between uh, what they would call enduro, which is kind of like racing in the woods and a motocross track. So a lot of what we rode. I rode both growing up. We rode a lot of motocross, uh, which is like what you'd see on TV, right? The motocross jumps yeah. um, and a track. And then there's like woods racing, which is more of an endurance sport. So it's like a longer uh, drawn out miles and miles through the trails and stuff like that. So what I ended up kind of, I guess, racing, and that was just kind of a West Coast thing, was the work series. And, you know, that's that's where – uh, I, yeah, I was racing in the, at the time that's, I, I was still racing when I broke my neck and that was kind of what ended it. Um, I ended up riding even after that, but that was kind of one of the game changers and, you know, growing up in, in the motocross space is you, you get hurt frequently and I, I going back to like, you know, whether it's crossing the river and, and learning to overcome adversity or it's just breaking a lot of things growing up, uh, you know, like it was, that was a part of the reason I think that helped me recover from say breaking my neck because I had broke enough stuff or been hurt enough times, uh, with motocross that it was kind of like that when you were talking about leveling up, it was, it's the opposite of that where, you know, I was so used to (laughs) breaking things and then being like, okay, I'm out for four weeks or I'm out for six weeks. Uh, it got to the point where you would just ask the doctor like, okay, how am I, how long am I out for? Uh, which is, not, not a healthy habit, but it, I looked at everything as like, oh man, this is how long I can't ride for, or I'm out for. So you, you know, say you break a kneecap or a elbow or something, uh, you, you're out for, you know, four weeks, you're laid up. And, and so like when I broke my neck, even I was paralyzed, it was more of a like, oh man, I'm out for like a year or two. Like, this is a long time, but it's a, it's a mindset shift because it was not like, oh, this is the end. It was like, oh, I am, I'm out for a while. This is going to take a long time to get better. But I, I think, you know, growing up in motocross had a lot to do with, you know, the recovery, say, of breaking my neck later in life, even though I was actually still racing at the time uh, when I did break my neck, uh, which was kind of a game changer. I remember like, and I, I remember thinking like, okay, I'm not going to stop racing just because of this. Like if I do get better, if I don't, even after I got better, it just, it changed. Uh, I think your risk, your risk reward uh, changes a little bit. You know, how you see the world changes once you've been in a wheelchair. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine. I, I could see though, like you said, how, you know, doing the racing and just having a couple broken bones and experiences where you, you know, you, it's almost like you realize in to be honest, like I can't relate a tongue because I've, I've actually, I don't think I've ever broken a bone. Um, Never broken a bone. Yeah. <laughs> I, I used to joke, and maybe it's true, but I drank a ton of milk growing up as a kid. So like it made my bone strong. That's <laughs> my, could be that's, true. yeah, I don't know. Um, but I could see where like, you know, um, if you had broken, you know, your arm and then your leg or your foot or your, you know, whatever. And then over time, just kind of getting beaten like that. 
from, you know, your activities and just, you know, life that like each time you did that, it's almost a little bit, I think there's appreciation for life that comes with it, but also a little bit of like, well, the human body and the human spirit is quite (laughs) strong. Like it turns out that we're not, we are fragile, but in some ways we're not as fragile as I I thought, you know, and like I could see where that can start to build up the resiliency where, I mean, yeah, you get to the point where you dive in, accidentally break your neck and you think, well, I've been through a lot. Like this is only (laughs) a little bit worse. I can do this. Like that kind of makes sense to me now how you would go into that thinking, no, I'm going to walk again. Like I'm a resilient human being. No. And I think that's what that, that was a lot of it. And that's like a very naive 22 year old way of approaching the world, but it's like that probably too. pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, ah, I'll be fine. Just rub some dirt on it. It'll be good. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I guess we got to factor in the naivety of, of just being young and not knowing. Pure any youth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Anyway, I don't know what we're talking about with the the racing thing, but we kind of get off on a tangent. Oh no, not at all. Um, it's uh, yeah, I, it's just amazing. Um, I, I was just interested because you know, um, definitely have not been racing any ATVs around here. I, I remember very vague memories as a kid. We have, I don't know if they're still down there, but we had some relatives down in southern Illinois who had a farm, uh, much r- you know, more rural area, and they had an ATV. I remember, you know, the, my one cousin would like ride us around on it, not racing, but just, you know, riding around and, um, it just, you know, it's kind of a fun, again, different perspective. So it was just uh, interesting to me. Well, and it's kind of like, I mean, we, we could break this entire podcast into leveling up, but I think that's kind of where it starts is like the adventures today, even though like I've kind of been humbled and broke my neck and like, that's probably slowed me down. Um, the adventures keep getting more and more dangerous or risky or like everything kind of gets leveled up a little bit. Um, and you know, these days I do a lot of hiking. I do like go in the mountains quite a bit. Um, but I would say that it's, it's always kind of been like a level up, you know, the, the adventures keep moving in that direction. Hopefully they, they keep getting safer as well. I like to think that like you also have, uh, the ability as you get older to like, okay, maybe I shouldn't be stupid, but I can still push the limits. I like that. <laughs> I think that's life <laughs> advice right there. <laughs> uh, well, Cody, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. This has been a blast. And yeah, um, sure. there's just so much in your story that I admire and I think others will learn from. So, um, you know, it's always uh, taking time out of our day to do anything in this, you know, limited hours in a day. I, I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, rate and review us, and share this episode with a friend. Thanks.